0: Hi everybody, I'm Paul Hines, CEO of GSA, and you're listening to The Little Blue Podcast. Today we're talking to Wyatt Roy, who was elected to the Australian Parliament at the age of 20, setting a record that still stands today. Wyatt's a person who completely blew me away. Our conversation captures Wyatt's obvious intelligence, which coupled with his inner peace and humility, makes for a very genuine and compelling person. He really did impress me. From a working-class background, the son of a strawberry farmer in Queensland, he joined the Liberal Party up there and rose quickly through the ranks. After six years in the hustle and bustle of Canberra, he left to join the private sector and now is the CEO of Affinity, a multi-billion dollar global tech company dealing in AI Wyatt talks about his dramatic career trajectory.
1: In two terms in Parliament, uh, I was fortunate enough to lead some pretty significant committees in the Parliament, but um, really to become a minister, uh, and not only become a minister but drive a huge reform package in the innovation space. The important influence of his father, very much a working man. Started his working life as a labourer, went back into the farm. Uh, and he was able to send me to a, you know, an all right school and uh, I was able to really take hold of that opportunity. And why it's shock discoveries of the business world. They are as bureaucratic and sometimes even more bureaucratic than, uh, than government and that has really surprised me and I think um, the virtue that I, I learn every day is patience.
0: That's all on this episode of The Little Blue Podcast. Well, the other day I was walking past a cafe on my way to work, just the, the usual way that I go, and uh, someone called out, G'day, Paul, and um, it was a friend who summoned me over to a table and I walked over and she said, Look, hey, firstly, how are you, blah, 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 I'd like you to meet Wyatt Roy. And I looked at this person and, and, and said, Wyatt Roy, I know that name. Hang, hang, hang on, aren't you the youngest ever MP? And Wyatt nodded at me with a, a bit of a, a grin. So I'd like to say good morning to you, Wyatt. It's lovely to have you here Thanks, and I appreciate mate. you giving me your
1: time. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah. And let's start with that.
0: Are you sick of being the youngest ever MP? It's
1: <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Um, uh, it is something I have zero control over. So I think um, you you find some zen in life about these things. And I'm very proud of my time in Parliament, what I did, the fact that I was there. Um, and I remember having this chat with a colleague of mine who um, – it was Christopher Pine. I'm sure he doesn't mind me telling the story. Chris was quite young when he got elected. And uh, it took him quite a while to kind of break out of that mould of being the young MP. And I said to him – there's no way that I want to be defined as being the youngest MP. It's always the things that you did, the contributions that you made. But the reality is, I was the youngest person ever elected to any parliament in Australia. And I think once you do that, inevitably it's something people think about. They talk about. They you know draw to, and uh, I just kind of accept it and embrace it, and uh, you know, but focus on the things that matter. I suppose.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, and I will say to you that my initial impression, and, and sometimes I'm. I take too much from an initial impression but my impression of you was a very genuine person I uh, thanks Brian. Uh, there's a certain there's a definite softness uh, in your face um, uh, and a happy person who's comfortable in his own skin and and I think um, a, a humble person would you say that they that is a fairly accurate description of um, of why I, I Roy? think
1: everyone's always nervous about talking about themselves in that way but I, I would I would make one. Uh, observation from, you know, that very, very, well, I'd say that very kind (laughs) uh, uh, definition, I would say I'm comfortable in my own skin. And I I think this really matters um, for someone that, you know, has had the experiences that I've had is when you have had a public life, when you're out there and exposed, It is really, really important, I think, that you are genuinely just comfortable in your own skin. You are who you are because in those professions, you can't keep everybody happy. If you try and be everything to everyone all the time, it always fails. And I find the most unhappy, miserable people... In politics or high-profile professions, are people who are not comfortable in their own skin. Yep. And I think you, again, you have to have that kind of zen about it. Be comfortable, and I am, I am who I am. I'm happy. I'm comfortable about God, that. And I think that that's a good outlook. Is, that
0: is absolutely sickening.
1: <laughs> and and uh,
0: can you give me an insight as to because I've spent 53 years trying to be comfortable in my skin. Was it just you? You were always comfortable in your skin, or did you achieve it through? Uh, yoga and meditation?
1: No, I think there is part... Of, I think, it, like, so much of this stuff in life, it is my upbringing. So, you know, to tell you a little bit about, um, you know, where I came from, my um, my family are farmers in Queensland. I think there is a real earthiness that comes with that. Um, I think farmers are constantly faced with challenges. Well,
0: I, my family are farmers too. You've got <laughs> it.
1: You've got it. Well, <laughs> but well, but but you must know that, I mean, you must know then, you know, you, you, you wake up in the morning, does it rain, doesn't it rain? These are things that you can't control, yes. you know, that, that fundamentally change your life. And I think um, that upbringing and particularly my father, I think, uh, gave me that ability of to, to, to just take life as it comes, you know, she'll be right, mate, sort of mentality.
0: Yeah. Tell us more about your upbringing. Was it a, a, a happy upbringing? You enjoy you enjoyed. Um, it was a strawberry farm, yeah. And uh, did you work on the farm? Were you a physical man or yeah? Yeah, tell us a bit more about that upbringing.
1: Yeah, so, so I grew up on a strawberry farm on the Sunshine Coast. Um, in many ways, I think we kind of had the best of both worlds because you had the farm, but, you know, the sunny coast is not exactly yeah. that, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so a great place to um, to grow up. P- plenty of days on the end of a shovel or, you know, chipping weeds and on the farm or picking strawberries, packing strawberries, which, you know, I think probably is a, a good, healthy upbringing as well. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I was fortunate in some ways my um, – uh, I'm the first person in my family to finish high school, including two older so, brothers who, wow. you know, I love dearly and, you know, they're doing other things in life. But um, there was never really that expectation for me to finish high school, let alone go on to all these other things. Um, and Were you uh, always academic as a no, kid? No, I mean, I, I, I certainly enjoyed the social aspects of school. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just finishing was a good thing and I, I did okay and there were certain things that I, you know, I re- particularly economics and I, I really liked um, that course. But... Um, Uh, I think for me, uh, that opportunity, dad worked very, very hard. You know, he started his working life as a laborer, went back into the farm. Uh, and he was able to send me to a, you know an all right school, and uh, I was able to really take hold of that opportunity. And I think um, for me that was kind of my grounding, and it's really my philosophical belief in life now is you know try and give everyone equal opportunities in life, and those that work hard, have a go, have a crack. It's amazing what you can achieve, and that's probably what set me up, I think, for um, for later stages in life. So, from there,
0: you're an MP at twenty, which just. It's mind-boggling but so what motivated you to pursue politics was it accidental or did you have a calling or was it a, a well thought out decision
1: It was it, I think the first step was um an influential person in my life it was uh, my my economics lecturer so right. I was I I uh, enjoyed economics I was good at economics um but at the same time I was helping out a mate of mine named Pat um who passed away a couple of years ago but Pat Uh, ended up in a wheelchair, and uh, my economics lecturer said, you understand economics, you understand everything that goes with that, uh, but you also understand social justice. And she's like, very few people understand both and can combine them and make a difference. And I know that's a cliche, but she was absolutely right. And she was the one that said, you should join a political party, not with the idea of being an MP at 20, but contributing to policy debate, particularly Mm -hmm. around disability policy and I was kind of reluctant, um, you know, it wasn't really something I'd thought of uh, that much, And um, but I did, a- and joined the political party that uh, aligned with my philosophical values. Uh, my family traditionally votes for the Labor Party, so that was, you know, interesting. <laughs> uh, and uh, But, you know, joined the Liberal Party, and I think once I started going to events, I realised that if you were confident without being arrogant, and, you know, I like your point about humility before, but I think there is a difference between confidence and arrogance. And if you are prepared to have a say without liking the sound of your own voice, you actually can make a difference inside the political system. And my view was if you're inside the tent, if you're part of the decision-making, that's where you can actually move the needle, make a difference. And I realised I could kind of do that. And the, the great thing, um, and this is not a partisan point, it's just reality about our party in Queensland is it's very democratic. So if you're a local, you vote. And I was able to very quickly find myself pre-selected, which was a big deal. Uh, and then elected to the parliament at a young age. Do you reckon you achieved much? I do. I, I um, in, Just
0: in the political...
1: Yeah, absolutely, time. I do. I think uh, a lot of people go into parliament and can spend 20 years there being frustrated because, you know, there might always be a backbench MP or they might always be in opposition or whatever. Uh, in two terms in parliament, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to lead some pretty significant committees in the parliament, but um, really to become a minister uh, and not only become a minister but drive a huge reform package uh, in the innovation space. Very few people are able to do that. Um, you know, we implemented just in that space, beside anything else in my parliamentary career, 24 policies across nine government departments. You know, we changed the tax system, the visa system, the education system, uh, and I think have done something that. There's always more to do, of course, but if we look back in ten, twenty, thirty years, it'll be something that had a very significant impact on our country, and uh, to be part of that, I think, was um, uh, you know hugely exciting, and uh, I was very privileged and lucky to do that.
0: Wow, that's that's great, and I should have known more about what you achieved. Hmm. And when I Google you, it doesn't all come up, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> you got to you got to wa- you got to watch Google because there's a lot you don't want to believe when you find on the internet too. So. <laughs> Uh, look, Wyatt,
0: I'm interested, and I'm sure uh, all the listeners are interested to know more about politicians. Mm-hmm. And then there's obviously a cynicism around whether or not they're well-meaning, yeah. and uh, or they start out being well-meaning, and the and the process that just the environment changes them. Uh, I, I'd just like uh, your thoughts as a collective. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on politicians? Tell us a bit about them, and and. Um, Yeah, what people want to know.
1: Yeah, well, I think beating up on politicians is a national sport and I don't think that's about to stop. Um, And I can understand why people would be cynical about politicians or the political process and all the rest of it. But my experience is the vast majority are absolutely there for the right reasons. It is a very, very difficult environment to be in. And now having spent quite a bit of time in the private sector, I can really attest to the fact that how... Uh, challenging political life can be for people, and I think that does have an impact on many. But my most obvious um, insight into politicians as a cohort is in the federal parliament, you know, you have 200-and-something politicians in the House and the Senate. If you look at any workplace anywhere in the country with 200-odd people in it, you will have good people, you will have bad people, you will have intelligent people, you will have not-so-intelligent people, you will have people motivated to do the right thing and the wrong thing, and I, I genuinely... I actually think it is kind of like another workplace, just with a lot more exposure. So, you know, if you if you said in any workplace in the country, how you are uh, perceived uh, will be determined by the two hundred other people that you work with, <laughs> and you have to guarantee that all two hundred plus. People are good people who, you know, are always going to do the right thing and motivated by the right intentions. I don't think anyone would say, sure, sign me up for that. <laughs> uh, but in the parliament, that's exactly what happens. You know, one person does the wrong thing and everyone thinks that uh, all politicians are bad and that's just not the case. So let's pick out the good ones.
0: And my mother has a saying which uh, relates to exactly what you just said, and that is, show me your friends yes. and I will tell you who you are. Yes. Who were your friends?
1: It's interesting. Um I I tell you how I I found this experience. When I went into Parliament, I was conscious that a lot of people would say, you know, there's a lot of novelty around you, you're very young, sort of sit over there on the sidelines and, you know, we'll talk to you later. I actually had the exact opposite experience. I think people realise that the Parliament and our political party work better when they are more representative of the Australian people. So if there's more diversity in the parliament, more people from different backgrounds, age, gender... A few you know, more Paul and Hansons in there. Well, you want some colour in there. <laughs> you want to make it look uh, representative. Um, so, so I think my colleagues really embraced uh, the idea that I was there and, and the people that I very quickly formed very close relationships with were, were really the senior leadership on um, on our side of parliament and to some extent on the other side. Uh, And I think part of that was they embraced this idea of something being different. And, you know, for lack of a better way of explaining it, took me under their wing. And I became very close with Malcolm Turnbull very early on. Uh, And obviously that throughout the career and today. And, um, you know, I think our world views are, are very similar. But Malcolm was also someone who was at a similar age to me doing really intense things uh, you know if you look at his professional life at a young age um, pretty hard to find someone that's done the sorts of things that he has done and I think he had a lot of um, insights and enthusiasm about, about me he always used to say like the parliament he's absolutely right the parliament the one thing it desperately needs more is, is passion um, and and uh, uh, I think he instilled a lot in that. Julie Bishop as well, very similar, became very close. And, uh, you know, a number of colleagues at that level. The other group that you really stick together with is the what we call a class in parliament. So the year that you're elected, the people that are elected at the same time, you become is extremely that right? okay. close. Okay. Uh, and it's amazing because you think about it, n- there is no, you know, there's no job interview or prerequisite to be a politician. You know, you could be the most high profile lawyer, the most amazing business person, you know the gun union representative, whatever, the moment you start day one in parliament, all of that kind of just doesn't matter. And you could be great at those professions and really bad at being a politician. Um, You just don't know. And I think when you all go through that same experience, so John Alexander is a great example. So many people might know JA as the... um, uh, the you know, tennis know The legend. tennis player. The, yeah. yeah, the tennis legend. Uh, he used to like saying, you know, he has shoes. He used to wear the shoes that were much older than me. But um, took on, you know, he would joke, uh, you know, my parliamentary dad. I had a few parliamentary dads and mums, But um, J.A. and I became really close just by shared experience, as weird as that kind of sounds. But, you know, elected at the same time, yeah, okay. experiencing new things together. Um, you know, whether that's dealing with the media or dealing with, you know, Parliament, Policies, Party, whatever, um, and you become you become really, really close to that experience. On the other side, on the Labor side, did you have friends? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you, you know, I think the political system today is not skewed to facilitate or encourage that, um, which is a great tragedy. Uh, but uh, even through that, you, you know, you do become close with members of the Labor Party. One person in particular, Ed Husick, who... Uh, was my opposite number um, in the uh, in the labor shadow ministry even before uh, we were promoted um, we became very very close talking about innovation Um, and he has this saying he's absolutely right at the end of any political career do you want to be remembered for somebody who was like a tribal warrior having the fight or do you want to be remembered as someone who brought people together and he's absolutely right about that and so we we traveled together we we actually used to write like joint opinion pieces in the media about policy which i think is pretty much unheard of um uh, you know caught up with him for lunch the other day um we're still pretty close so it, it does happen but it's 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 harder than it should be
0: so you were uh, assistant minister for innovation, absolutely, yep. and then you've taken that further, uh, and you're now CEO of Infinity. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously have a passion for it. Yes. Tell us about about your passion and about the role at Infinity, where you're CEO. Yeah.
1: So in mean, AI and technology more broadly, I mean, I have a huge um, belief that technology can change the world for the better. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fear around technological change, and sometimes that's founded in reality, but Ultimately, technology improves our quality of life, it drives productivity, it creates amazing opportunities for um, you know, improving people's lives across the globe and Im- improving our economic success story. So for me, that's sort of the passion in the industry. In terms of Affinity, um, I, you know, I've been liberated into the private sector, which is very, very exciting. Um, I run Australia for the US arm of, uh, of Affinity, which is a US-based uh, multi-billion dollar AI company. Founded by genuinely the most impressive person I've met, uh, a guy named Zia Shisti. He's 46. It's his third multi-billion dollar company he's built from scratch. Grew up in Pakistan. Um, it is really the genuine rags to riches kind of story. Uh, computer scientists by trade, you know, right. built this thing. Uh, And we we drive huge amounts of incremental revenue for the largest companies on the planet. So I think big telcos, banks, insurance companies, we use AI to optimize their contact centers. uh, And that allows us to pair uh, customers and agents inside these organizations based on behavior Big improvement in the customer satisfaction. Give us an example of that. So, how, how would that work? So let's imagine I'm I'm calling a large uh, Australian telco, insurance company, bank. Um, you know, I might be calling up uh, because I want to buy something, or maybe I want to, you know, leave that company. Maybe I want to cancel my insurance uh, with this company. What would happen today is, uh, without affinity being there, uh, you are a, an agent in that organisation is connected with the person who's been waiting the longest. We all know that kind of painful experience yep. sitting on the phone. We do a behavioral analysis on the customer and the agent, and we connect the two people who get along best based on behavior. It turns out that has a huge impact in your ability to sell something to that person, retain them, improve that customer experience. That's all kind of exciting, and you know there's a lot of AI and machine learning behind that. The real magic in this company is we turn that algorithm on again and off again in short cycles. That allows us to precisely measure the impact that we have, devoid of everything else, and our business model then is: we carry all the investment costs, we carry all the risk, and we just revenue share what is a very significant amount of revenue uh, that we create. Uh, you know, for some of our companies, that gets up into the billions of dollars. And uh, so this company is, you know, absolutely exploding. I think growing north of a hundred percent year on year. Very significant revenues in eighteen countries, a thousand people across the globe, and and growing. And the technology is exciting, but I think it's that business model that's really very different and unique in the AI space so well, um, I
0: hope your wallets exploding at the same rate as the company but yeah absolutely <laughs> no, I'm, jo- <laughs> I'm joking but what I did take out of that is that so my, the cynical side of me thought okay well that's all about the insurance company or the the institution what's in it for the customer but I guess the customer ends up speaking to someone who they're aligned with so they have a better they they can actually communicate more effectively with that person
1: exactly right you have a, a really good customer experience that you otherwise wouldn't have so in an environment that it's not renowned for giving people a good experience so this
0: Zia that you talk about uh, your founder and um, inspiration by the sounds of it uh, can you tell us more about what drives him and how, how it all started just tell us a bit more about this man
1: he is genuinely this remarkable person I think who is He's the the amazing entrepreneur and the amazing scientist in one, which is quite a rare combination to find. And he's just hugely driven about driving massive value for organizations, but also bringing together interesting people to achieve an outcome. Uh, and if you look at our company, I've never quite seen anything like it where... You know, our board and advisory board includes you know, former prime ministers, the former CEOs of big companies like Verizon and Sony and BP and BT. And to bring together those sorts of people, I think, is a great testament to him. And when you put people like that together to solve for an outcome, to drive value, um, it's, a, it's a really exciting experience to be involved in something like that and few people, I think, have that ability to make something like that happen.
0: Tell, tell us about that transition. So you've you've uh, went straight into politics and then you, you stayed in politics and then you've transitioned into the business world. And I, I'm fascinated to know, did you acquire the required, uh, I, I guess you would have had the leadership skills, but, but the managerial skills that you need as a CEO in, in business?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting transition to go through. And I think I did that in a way that I can't actually think of another person who's done it in this way because normally what happens is people go into politics much later in their life. Um, Often it's their last professional career um, or if they're coming out, you know, they're coming out in their 60s, 70s, whatever, the world looks very different. For me, you know, I was coming out at 26, uh, had served as a minister and I made a very conscious decision to get as far away from government as possible, to go as deep as possible into the private sector um, and I think, uh, a few things played out. So I had a, I think an almost an unfair advantage for someone my age having the experience that I did. So, uh, you know, to your point about managerial, um, experience, obviously as a minister, you know, you've got a relatively big staff yourself and you're doing that, but you, you're, you know, head of a department that has thousands of people in it. Uh, you know, just my portfolio and my direct area of responsibility within the portfolio, you know, we're administering north of $8 billion a year, um, Unusual for a twenty-five-year-old, twenty-six-year-old to be doing that. So, I think that kind of puts you in good stead. I think one of the um, interesting things about politics and parliament is you have enormous exposure to things that just most people would never get the opportunity to see. Uh, So, you, you know, you develop relationships with, you learn from the leaders across the board. So, you know, you'd be dealing with the CEOs of the big companies, whether that's health or you know, insurance or telecommunications, IT, whatever if you want to learn about the economy, I mean, you're talking to the governor of the Reserve Bank and the um you, you know leaders in 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 the finance world if you want to learn about defense and national security you, you know you're talking to the head of the defense force you're talking to soldiers if you want to learn about the environment you're dealing with that and so you can see your exposure across the board is unlike anything else you've ever seen and your learning curve is so steep so that is quite different to you know if i had started my career joining a consulting firm or a bank and you know great experiences but vastly different to to my world and i think that um Uh, While not often the perception, I think that gave me uh, a great foothold to sort of start this new life. And then obviously, like all things in life, with the relationships, the mentors that I've developed in the business community, um, it's been like drinking from a fire hydrant, learning from them and and building the (laughs) business. And I love that. I I find that exciting. And, uh, 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 you know, it's been a great learning experience as well. Tell me one thing you have found hard. What's one thing that
0: you've really struggled with in, in, in going from politics into business?
1: Um, it's a good question. I think um, struggle, you know, maybe it's the wrong word, but surprised, I think, is you know, when, when you're in government, the wheels can move slowly. You know, it's a bureaucratic system. Driving change takes time. It's quite heavy, and I think it's very easy to have this perception as of the private sector as fast-moving, quick decision-making, get stuff done, you know, logic prevails because, you know, one plus one equals two, we're just trying to make money at the end of the day, that makes sense. There is some truth to that, but certainly in the world that we operate in, which are the largest companies, they are as bureaucratic and sometimes even more bureaucratic than, uh, than government, and that has really surprised me. And I think um, uh, navigating that, and probably the virtue that I, I learn every day is patience, um, and I think that has surprised me in the private sector is um, how valuable patience is. Uh, you always know persistence is valuable, but um, uh, you know I, don't, I just don't think the private sector moves as quickly as the noise sometimes makes out, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know it's maybe in the eyes.
0: multinationals. No, anyway. exactly,
1: Why? exactly. It's this but, classic sort of overnight yeah. success story. You know, everyone always talks about this, but. Um, you know you become an overnight success in the business community after you know 10 15 20 years of, of something happening and uh, uh, I, I've enjoyed finding that reality
0: do you have an image of what you are going to be or that you want to be at say 50 and at 60 that that well, do, do you have a feeling or an image as to what 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 it looks like
1: um I mean there's so many answers to that question I think at a personal level before you talk about a professional level to, to how we started this conversation is um, the one constant in my life that I think you always try and um, create or uphold is is happiness um, so if you get to you know 50 60 or even later in life what has been a successful life or career is one that made you happy um, uh, and I think that should be the prison that you view everything else through so that's kind of you know the personal element you know having great friends, having great relationships, you know, all the rest of it, Um, doing a job that you want to get out of bed in the morning. I think for my generation, um, you know, they talk about us having at least eight careers now, working life, and I think that's probably going to be true. I mean, this job is different to my last one, and I'm sure my next one will be different again. Um, But uh, at at a broader level, you would want to be somebody who has made a difference to the world. You know, life is short, we don't get to be here for very long and I think at the end of it you would hope that you have have made a a positive contribution that has actually changed the world for the better and I know that kind of sounds like a you know Miss Universe sort of uh, statement but <laughs> it should absolutely be true as well uh give, give us a couple of lessons a couple of lessons that you know things
0: observations things that might be relevant to other people listening that uh they might take on themselves
1: um I've always found um, if you seek advice from people and it doesn't matter how senior they are, people are unbelievably willing to help. Uh, And if I look across my life and I say, what's made the biggest difference and uh, where am I surprised that people have been held back? It is a willingness to pick up the phone, to talk to somebody who you might not know that well, they might be a lot more senior than you and saying, hey, I'm thinking about this idea. What do you think and what's your advice? And I think if you do that, the dynamics between people just radically change. Um, one, you obviously learn a lot. Uh, but I also have found that experience, it's kind of like going to the horse races. Um, if somebody has helped you, if somebody has given you that advice, they want you to succeed at that yes. point. They want yep. to put a ticket on that horse. They want it to run well. They want it to, to have success. That's a very different thing to saying uh, in any professional environment I'm going to work my way up the pecking order. I'm going to find whatever position I want because I'm the smartest person in the room. And I think particularly doing that at a young age, kind of the wheels come off very, very quickly. If you rock up and say, you know, I'm so smart. This is so great. Everyone should believe me. You know, why haven't I got the CEO job today? Um, That kind of ends in tears. Uh, But I think if you have that ability to bring people together, and that is about seeking uh, other people's ideas, thoughts, inputs... um, that's been my greatest lesson, I think, in, in, in the last few years. Uh, that, uh,
0: that impresses me. Um, I, I always say to the team here, ask for advice, don't ask for help. Yeah, People will give you their help. But, but frame it, it's got to be you you want their advice. Yep. No one has turned me down when I've said I need your advice on something. No,
1: I completely <laughs> agree. And it, you don't even have to always take it. I mean, often mm. it's good advice, so you should, but um, I think the ability to use people as a sounding board, to workshop ideas with people is you know, the strength of any organisation, whether that's in, in government or outside of it. Um, if you think about the greatest policy political failures of the last 10, 20 years, it's when people haven't workshopped an idea. You know, someone's come up with an idea, so this is great, let's just implement it. If they picked up the phone a few more times, you know, things would be dealt with a hell of a lot better. I just thought about greyhound racing for a second. Yeah. Look,
0: give us a couple inspirations in your life, just a a couple role models, uh, people
1: who have inspired you. I think Malcolm Turnbull, you mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, so many people must say this, but um, genuinely my father, I think, huge inspiration and, and influence on my life. You know, dad's somebody who, you know, obviously works incredibly hard, has an amazing work ethic and um, uh, I think has, you know, really done a lot for me because of that uh, and, and you know, for his own life, I suppose. He had a very, you know, difficult sort of childhood and, and I think is amazing what he's done. Um, but I think beyond that, it, he is the most kind, generous, compassionate, helpful, fun person to be around. You know, it's impossible not to fall in love with him and he's just an incredibly good person. Uh, And even beyond that a little bit more is he really has taught me I take what I do in life incredibly seriously. You know, what I do, you know, you hope can make a big difference and it's important, but I never take myself too seriously. You know, you always have to have that... um, that view on yourself, and you have to enjoy it. And I think for me, learning that from him uh, and seeing that is just—it's um, really important. Wyatt, I've got to say that
0: I've enjoyed this little getting to know you session. Thanks, mate. Uh, I think everyone. Next listening... time, I want to know
1: more about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'll come. It's very one way this conversation.
0: <laughs> Try and shut <laughs> me up. <laughs> Don't ask any questions. So, look, I just want to say th- thank you so much. And I think that for anyone listening. I think there's going to be a couple out there that do. But if you meet this man, uh, you too would be impressed. Thanks very much, Wyatt. Thanks, Matt. It's very
1: kind.